0: If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap, but I don't feel like going into it. Okay, I was just asking. No need to be so aggressive.
1: You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, welcome to Outside of a Dog, and if you really want to know, my name is Jonas. And if you really need to know, my name is Christian, you phonies. And of course, we're talking about a great classic of white boy literature, The Catcher in the Rye
0: by J.D. Salinger. Like To Kill a Mockingbird, The Catcher in the Rye is one of those books, a book that everyone has read, or at least should have read.
1: But unlike To Kill a Mockingbird, it's not that often read in school. It is sometimes assigned to older pupils. It is very often assigned in college. But it is a bit too sweary and there's a bit too much drinking and, well, not sex, but at least discussion of sex going on for younger high school students.
0: The novel takes place in December 1949 and it deals with Holden Caulfield, the protagonist and narrator of the novel. Holden is at a low point in his school career. He's 16 and he's just been thrown out of Pensy, the exclusive private school he went to. He doesn't know what else to do, so... He goes to New York and basically tries to connect with people there that might understand his woes, his thoughts about growing up and the fear of growing up. He talks to cab drivers. He has a date with an old girlfriend. He hires a prostitute just to talk to her. He visits an old teacher. But all of these experiences are rather disillusioning. The date goes horribly wrong. The prostitute's pimp beats him up. And the teacher may or may not try to molest him. So in the end, the only person Holden can really relate to is his younger sister, Phoebe. And he takes her out and he imagines himself to be the catcher in the rye, a kind of misunderstanding regarding an old Robert Burns poem. He sees himself as a kind of figure keeping children safe, safe from the dangers of adulthood, danger that he might already have had too much experience with.
1: The novel was published in 1951 as the first and only novel by J.D. Salinger, a writer who had gained acclaim already with his short stories, who had then served in the Second World War. But after the immense success of The Catcher in the Rye, he became a recluse, he didn't really appreciate the attention that it put on him. He didn't really appreciate the attempt to adapt it into plays or films. And as a matter of fact, he only published a couple more collections of short stories, a novella called Frenny and Zooey. And that's really it. And he remained a recluse until he died in 2010 at the age of 91.
0: Or he didn't, and he rather created Hollywood stars and celebrities. What do they know? Do they know things? Let's find out. Shout out to Bojack Horseman.
1: Yeah, you keep saying I should watch that. I I haven't. So uh, it's on Netflix, I guess. so. So when talking about this book, there are a lot of things to bring up. But interestingly, the very first thing that we both agreed on when we wrote our list of discussion topics
0: was we want to talk about the language, the
1: style. So, Christian, what is it about the language that interested you so much?
0: Well, Salinger himself has said that you cannot separate the novel from the voice of its narrator, Holden, and he really tried to emulate the language of a teenager at that time. Holden uses a lot of slang, a lot of swear words, and he keeps repeating the same terms, trying to describe what really bothers him with the world. Infamously, he keeps talking about phonies. All the people that are not real, that are not truthful, these are all phonies. Most of them, obviously, adults. He also describes all things in this very distancing style. Things are always sort of something or pretty much something and other stuff like that. So it's a very distinctive style that by all rights should not work today because youth slang of the 40s or 50s really is much different than what we see as authentic youth language nowadays. So that is one point to discuss about the language that is, is very much through the lens of this teenager in the 40s. Jonas, do you think that this is something that doesn't work nowadays anymore?
1: It's interesting because the first time I read The Catch in the Rye was actually when I was a teenager and I read it in German in my dad's old edition, translated by none other than Heinrich Böll, one of the greatest German writers of the post-war period. And he did a very good job of conveying this teenage slang into German. And then when I read it in English, I obviously noticed, oh yeah, so that's what this is based on. But it didn't really feel inauthentic. It felt certainly old. It certainly felt like a kind of language that even as a second language speaker, I recognized, okay, this is not what teenagers talk like anymore. But it still felt comprehensible. I certainly knew what he was getting at. Uh, So, for example, he never says money. He says dough all the time. So that sort of shows a certain cool disconnect from financial matters.
0: So I think it really works. And it seems authentic. It doesn't seem like he's pandering. There are times when you feel a bit removed from Holden. Interestingly enough, I think the times when he shows how much of an upper-class teenager he is... When he goes to New York, he seems to know all the best places to dine. He talks about all the movies he's seen. And these are the times when you think, okay, this is unlike any teenage experience most people nowadays have. But at the same time, when he describes the frustration with the adult world, for example, it doesn't matter which language or which curses he uses, that comes across I think, quite clearly, and also the contrast between his frustration and what he actually hopes for. There, Salinger goes beyond slang, and I mentioned the distancing language, and I think that is quite important, that Holden uses this kind of nonchalant voice to mask something, the yeah, despair, the fear he really feels. And therefore, the language, no matter which style, no matter which period it's from, is very important, too. What I also really like about the style of the novel
1: is that it's so very conversational. Interestingly, we've had a couple of books in this podcast that are basically written like a conversation. Tristram Shandy, just last time we had Gargantua and Pantagruel. But this is quite clearly a conversation with a kind of therapist. There are a couple of mentions where he says, ah, now I'm in this place. And at first, he says that he's there because of new pneumonia or TB. So it's a kind of sanatorium. But then he talks about a psychoanalyst who's there as well. So maybe it's a kind of mental hospital as well. It is not very clear. And he seems reluctant to talk about that. But it certainly seems like we hear his voice. Like Salinger said, he talks about this voice of Holden Caulfield. And I always felt that this was a voice that was very distinctive. And I really like the way that this is narrated. One of my favorite examples of an author highlighting the unreliability of his narrator is the very first sentence of chapter three, where Holden says, I'm the most terrific liar you ever saw in your life. How brilliant is that? A character just states, by the way, I lie all the time. And then he just continues with his story. But it always stays at the back of your mind. You always think, hang on, what is he telling me here? And that makes you really pay attention to the details. For example, when he talks about how upset he was about the death of his brother and how he smashed all the window panes in his parents' garage and therefore cut his hand really badly. It's a throwaway line. You could easily miss it. But because you pay so close attention to it, it suddenly becomes
0: very tragic, really. And it's the classic Epimenides situation. If he says he's a liar, is he actually lying there? And I think he maybe fancies himself to be this great storyteller who dazzles everyone. But in his interactions, we see he cannot keep his emotions behind the facade. He really wants to be close to people and people are alienated by that. But I think definitely there is a lot of doubt about the things that he tells us. One of my favorite parts
1: is when he talks about how he gets into a fight with his roommate at boarding school. This next part I don't remember so hot. All I know is I got up from the bed, like I was going down to the can or something, and then I tried to sock him with all my might, right smack in a toothbrush so it would split his goddamn throat open. Only I missed, I didn't connect... All I did was sort of get him on the side of the head or something. Probably hurt him a little bit, but not so much as I wanted. And that is just amazing. Also, as you said, he cannot keep his emotions back. His roommate actually just came back from a date with a girl who he used to sort of hang out with when they were kids. And he sees her very much as this innocent kid still. And he's tormented by the thought that maybe his roommate had sex with her and sort of used her. But he talks about it very nonchalantly. And, oh yeah, I just wanted to... Basically, kill him, but I didn't really, and it wasn't that bad. But he still smacked him in the fucking head, for God's sake. And this is what I really like about it that it works on so many levels that you always have to question what he says, even if, as you say, maybe he's lying about saying that he's a lion, that he dazzles people with his stories.
0: He's still definitely full of shit. Now, the question obviously is do we identify with Holden, with his perspective, his language? And that brings us to the larger question. Is this a book just for us, for, as you put it, sad white boys who are angry at the world?
1: Yeah, that's what I wrote down in the notes, because that's certainly a criticism that's often leveled at The Catcher in the Rye. And it has certainly been a book for sad white boys who are angry at the world for the past 50 years. As I said, I first read it in my father's edition. My father, who, like me, was a middle-class German kid uh, growing up, in his case, in the 60s identified with Holden Caulfield. And I, to a certain extent, also identified with Holden Caulfield, but also thinking that he was a fucking idiot. But I think not necessarily that only people like him can identify with him. People often criticize that Holden Caulfield is unlikable, and I agree. He's horrible, but he's also very interesting. And his certain sense of detachment, of angst, as you might say, is something that I feel a lot of people can identify with. Though, of course, I shouldn't presume to judge. I just think that this is a character that can certainly appeal to a lot of people.
0: It's very interesting that you mentioned that, because I remember my mom telling me about this book and how much she identified with Holden. And she specifically mentions the cursing, this kind of little rebellion against the grown-up world that you say something harsh, but at the same time truthful, this anger towards the adult world. And like your dad, my mom grew up in the 60s. And I think that spirit of rebellion, of teenage rebellion, that maybe transcends gender or race to a certain degree.
1: It would be interesting to hear if there is a book like The Catcher in the Rye
0: for either girls or... There is. It's The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. It's often used as a D1 female example.
1: Okay, thank you for exposing my ignorance then. But I I was going to throw that to the listeners, sort of. um, If you always felt that you couldn't identify with Horton Caulfield, what was the book that you could really identify with as an angry early teen? Supposing that you were angry as a teen, but if you weren't, then... What's wrong with you? (laughs) Really?
0: that's just weird but not to judge but still it's fucking weird but it's interesting it's the question again of how much of the book is a very distinctive perspective but that's also singular for the time and for the context and how much of it is a very universal general experience of growing up and not liking it that much i mean you you say universal it's isn't really that
1: universal because i mean I don't know how often you basically ran away from your boarding school and spent a couple of days in manhattan meeting prostitutes
0: i didn't do that very often but at the same time how many times did you talk to classmates who you were kind of polite to but you at the same time you thought all of the time oh just shut up you stupid idiot I, actually i was always arrogant enough
1: to tell them uh that they should just fuck off I actually remember when I was uh, 17, a classmate asked me, do you think you're better than me? And I just looked at him and said, of course. (laughs) But maybe that just shows how much more unlikable even than Holden Caulfield I am, that I didn't even have the veneer of politeness he has.
0: Okay, let's put it in different terms. How many times did you kind of look back at your own childhood and think, well, times were better then? I think that is the main topic of the whole thing, the loss of innocence that Holden fears, that growing up is a trap, that everything that means something is kind of lost. And that's the tragedy that he realizes, well, can't happen. It will be lost. And he at least doesn't come to terms with it. You mentioned that he's probably in a sanatorium and writing down his story maybe is a kind of therapy for him. But at least in the novel, there is not really a hint that he kind of has accepted his impending adulthood. Or is there?
1: We talked a lot about this in a couple of previous episodes. At the end of the books, you often see a glimmer of hope. And I often say, no, it's completely desperate. I think this time around, I would again say... Not really. He describes how he watches his little sister, Phoebe, who is basically the only person he likes and the only person I as a reader really like. He watches her on a carousel and just looking at her having fun on that ride makes him feel immensely happy all of a sudden. And for the first time, he's really calm. But that is not the end of the book. There is another one-page chapter where he basically says... Okay, so that's the story of what happened, and then I became ill, and I had to come here. And he talks about how much he misses all of those people, even the pimp who beat him up. And he closes by saying, it's funny, don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. So he retreats back into his shell. It's tragic. I think it's completely hopeless.
0: I would agree, As I said, maybe writing this down, this is an idea I've kind of stolen from John Green's interpretation of The Catcher in the Rye in his Crash Course video series. Maybe this book is the connection that Holden seeks, that he tries to make people understand. But at the same time, it is kind of a foregone conclusion that what he hopes to have, what he hopes to be. Namely, the catcher in the rye doesn't work. As we said, it's a misunderstanding. He misinterprets a song and so he misinterprets his own role incredibly.
1: But you mentioned John Green and he sort of sees this whole narrating of the book as a very hopeful act as finally he finds someone who he can tell his story to and who listens to him But I would say no, because a lot of us don't like him. A lot of us really hate him. And as I said, the last sentence really shows that he retreats from us again and he does not want to engage with us anymore. So after all of this great talk about despair and sadness and not wanting to grow up, let's talk about a very fundamental part of the novel. Maybe basic, but let's talk about the actual physical setting. Let's talk about New York.
0: I had the idea of talking about New York because I read The Catcher in the Rye for a university seminar um, in Britain where the topic of the seminar was New York and fiction taking place in New York. Basically, you could say Catcher in the Rye is Holden versus New York. You couldn't imagine this taking place anywhere else. You need the city. You need the amenities of the city. And I think New York is a very interesting setting. Many of Holden's reference points are there because he grew up there. Again, he is an upper class kid. He's basically the son of an Upper West Side well-off family. But he focuses on certain points. He knows all the best joints to take a girl out to. He is very well aware of the theatres, the cinemas and so on. But he keeps thinking, for example, about the ducks in Central Park. So last bit of nature in the big city, you might say. New York is presented in a very, again, alienating way. That on the one hand, it's full of opportunities. But these are mostly the opportunities of the grown-up world. And one of the places where Holden actually has fun, basically, is the Museum of Natural History. Because, and he says so, it stays like it is so stasis instead of development. And I find that contrast very fascinating, that urban life is not a promise. In other coming-of-age stories, New York would be opening up new possibilities for this young, alienated teenager. In this case, it's all the worse. It's where he comes from and it's where he really doesn't like it.
1: That's one thing I really couldn't identify with as a small-town German kid because New York was just the fucking best. Are you kidding me? Though, when I then actually went to live in a big city, the closest thing Germany has to New York probably, in Berlin, I all of a sudden could emphasize and saw, "Mm, yeah this is not all that I hoped it would be. And maybe if I had grown up in a big city, I could have seen that earlier.
0: And there are, of course, many works in American and in European literature about the alienation of the individual in the modern city. But what I find interesting about The Catcher in the Rye is that Salinger presents us with seemingly very entertaining and great things. Cinemas, going out, dancing, prostitutes, all of the great things a city has to offer, you know. But they don't, Work. At least they don't work for Holden. Yeah, he really hates the cinema. We should maybe reiterate that.
1: He keeps going on about phonies, which is a group of people he really hates. But the phoniest of them all for him is Hollywood and cinema. In the first page, even, of the novel, he talks about his brother, D.B., who used to be a proper writer, and now he lives in Hollywood and works as a prostitute. A screenwriter. Which is not mentioned, but it's sort of assumed that, you know to read it as screenwriter. That's a very negative view that I would not subscribe to as well. But you know a person who did grow up in New York? J.D. Salinger, He is a kid from Manhattan and a lot of people have read The Catcher in the Rye as a form of veiled autobiography. Let's talk about that as well. How does the author relate to his work in this specific case?
0: Again, we have to uh, mention John Green's analysis.
1: John Green really likes The Catcher in the Rye, and I really like John Green, so it figures.
0: Although we have also seen that we not always have the same opinion, for example, when it comes to Hope. So I think that obviously there is an autobiographical connection. Most of Salinger's work actually takes place in this setting. Franny and Zooey, for example, is also about upper-class New York kids at a very fancy school somewhere in the eastern seaboard of the U.S., So there is a certain connection that is there. Most of the short stories often deal with family. And family, again, in a very autobiographical sense, the kind of family Salinger apparently had. But on the other hand, we've talked a lot in these podcast episodes about is the author dead? Should we consider him or her or not? I think in this case, it's one of those cases where it's certainly interesting to consider the author, but Holden Caulfield is such a strong character that it's sometimes good that he overshadows J.D. Salinger. And the connection we have to Holden Caulfield maybe goes beyond the kind of influences that Salinger's experiences had on writing this.
1: True, although I would also stress that it certainly enriches the reading of The Catch in the Rye to know that Salinger, for example, knew of the horrors of the wider world he was active in the second world war he was at the d-day landings in fact he had an early manuscript of the catcher in the rye in his backpack when he stormed the beach in normandy which is just incredible to think so i'm sure that that was part of a certain alienation from the modern world that for lack of a better term his generation felt And that definitely influenced The Catcher in the Rye. But it is removed enough from his experience that it has become such a universal book. It is not a book about the Second World War. The army and the Second World War and nuclear bombs are mentioned in passing as something that Holden's brother, D.B., has dealt with as a soldier in the Second World War. But it's not explicitly about that. And that's what makes it so rich, that on the one hand it is so specific and on the other hand it is so vague.
0: So maybe one last thing to mention, something we have alluded to already, the impact of the book. Because on the one hand, there are a lot of strong emotions and a lot of identification with the book and with Holden Caulfield. We mentioned John Green. We mentioned partly ourselves. Our parents. Our parents, exactly. Uh, The Catcher in the Rye is often seen as one of those voices of a generation book. And not just a generation, but of teenagers in general.
1: But... When we talked about the impact before we started the recording, there was another name that came up, Mark David Chapman. The man who shot John Lennon had the catcher in the rye with him at that time. So this really, this really adds to the whole air of mystery and intrigue and scandal about the book and is
0: maybe part of the hype around it. And nowadays, I think there's just as great a backlash as there is a hype because so many people read this and maybe cannot identify or see it as a very sad, white, rich, upper or middle class voice that doesn't have anything to do with a more postmodern world, maybe that makes the book so controversial that the question of identification, of either identifying too much to a certain degree or not identifying at all and actually hating this voice, that that is something that still is a prevalent discussion going on nowadays. Either way, I would
1: like to conclude by saying that I feel the book deserves the great impact that it has had. I think it is very touching. I definitely could identify with it. And if you couldn't identify with it as a teenager, maybe go and revisit it. Or if you could identify with it as a teenager, go and reread it and look back on the book, on your teenage self and reconsider it. And I'm sure that I will reread The Catcher in the Rye in decades to come and I will still continue to find new things about it and I will still continue to be intrigued by
0: it. I agree. You may have certain points of criticism. There are many things that may be Work not as well, but I think it is incredible that such a relatively short novel offers so many interpretations and so many details to kind of latch onto. I revisited the book and I realized I had forgotten many things and or I reinterpreted many things in another way. And as Jonas said, I am sure that I will reread this. In years to come and that alone is I think a very important judgment of the quality and of the importance of this novel
1: but what else could you read if you have already read the Catcher in the rye and just hate it too much to even face it if it is one of those books that you had to read in school and you just don't feel like reading it anymore what else is there
0: I have two recommendations one of them is another book by Salinger, which we've already mentioned namely, Frenny and Zooey, which is one of my absolute all time favorites. Franny and Zooey also deals with young people coming to terms with the horrible nature of the world around them, but it's much more introspective than Holden Caulfield's very sarcastic voice. It's a dialogue between two siblings, the eponymous Franny and Zooey, members of the Glass family, a family Salinger has written many short stories about, and the way They describe dealing with this crisis of basically faith of growing up is much more esoteric, but also more appealing and more introspective than Holden Caulfield's despairing way. On the other hand, there are, of course, a great deal of very good coming-of-age novels. One that I would like to recommend is Black Swan Green by David Mitchell, who's most famous probably for... As,
1: As a member of the double act, Mitchell and Webb.
0: No, 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 no. Different one, different one. Most famous for writing Cloud Atlas. And Black Swan Green is a very traditional coming-of-age story of a young teenager in Britain in the 80s. But it's interesting because there are gaps between the chapters, and we don't know what happened in these gaps. So it's not as coherent as Holden's narrative, but at the same time, it is much more hopeful. The young protagonist of the novel actually seems to come to terms with what is going on, even though his experience is just as extreme and just as ambivalent as Holden's. So a more hopeful view on growing up and viewing life from a young perspective. Black Swan Green by David Mitchell.
1: My recommendation this week is intensely personal. I've been thinking... A lot of my early teenage years, sort of starting around 2003 recently, because I've been thinking a lot of society and history from that time recently. 2003 was the year that the Iraq war started, a horrible conflict, and the war of terror is still ongoing. And I remember, even as an early teenager, how shocked I was by the fact that the USA twice elected a gormless idiot into the highest office in the land. And now as I see them sort of sleepwalking towards electing a vicious authoritarian for that very office. You're talking about Hillary, right? (laughs) I'm not. um, I am scared. I'm really genuinely scared for the future of the United States and by extension the future of the world because they are the only world power left. So this is scary. And I was thinking back to 2003, 2004, this crazy time where America started a war and where everybody else basically looked at them and went, what the are you doing I also look at Britain and I see the signs of the end times there and I cope with this by listening to the kind of music I listened to in 2003 2004 2005 and I would recommend revisiting the music that you listen to in your teenage years in my case it's a bit embarrassing a bit cheesy like the music that you listen to as a teenager is system of a down byOB or good Charlotte I'm young and I'm hopeless those are angry angry songs and albums but but they definitely fit the mood of the time then, they definitely fit the mood of the time now, and they make a good soundtrack to reading The Catcher in the Rye.
0: So be like Holden Caulfield and try to turn back the time. But if you don't want to despair, and I urge you not to, you can rather keep in touch with us. Give us feedback. Write to us at outsideofadocast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter at Outside of a hound. And, of course, you can subscribe to the
1: podcast on iTunes. You can write reviews there, which is also a great way to give us feedback. And remember
0: to rate us. Five stars or otherwise. So, this is it for teenage angst. Jonas, next time, are we finally going to grow up? Well, we are.
1: In fact, we're going to talk a lot about growing up and families throughout time. When we're going to discuss White Teeth by Zadie Smith. A dentist novel. Not really. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. You know New York, you need New York, you know you need unique New York.
0: Uh, thank you, Jonas, for that.
1: Did I mention that I do theatre? No, because you should go down at the end of the sentence. No reflection.
0: Yes, you should. No, I shouldn't. Yes, you should. Yes, you should. None of my girls do that? (laughs) None of my squad? Okay. Your suicide squad? (laughs) Oh my god. Imagine if you were on a squad with Cara Delevingne. (laughs) Uh, So you imagine you were Taylor Swift. I would like to be Taylor Swift. Sidebar. I hate the concept of a squad. I hate it incredibly. Squad goals is one of those terms that makes my... Spleen crumble and my toes curl. And- I'm, I'm I'm going to return your jacket then. Okay,
1: that's no, it's okay. They can pick off the embroidery and put something else on there.